All right, so it's going to be Genesis 21. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And so the 21st chapter, we're going to read starting from verse 8. All right, I will read it for you. Uh, Starting verse 8. And the child grew. So this child is Isaac. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for though Isaac... For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took skin and a I'm sorry, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is, up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. Um, Okay, can you lower the volume just a tad bit? All right. Whoa. All right. Uh, So why are we looking at the story of Hagar? And uh, for those of us in the church, we tend to ignore her. We tend to dismiss her, right? How many of you uh, are named Hagar, right? Notice that no one is named Hagar. There are people named Sarah. There are people named uh, Rebecca. Rachel, there are even a few people named Leah, all women in Abraham's family, but no one names their daughter Hagar. Why is that? And people say, well, that's because, you know, doesn't, isn't Hagar a failed attempt by Abraham to secure the promises, right? And so isn't she sort of a cautionary tale, right? Isn't she sort of evidence that Abraham did not believe God? And that's true. And uh, we can say that that is the major point, maybe the major takeaway theme of uh, Hagar's life. And that's, in fact, what Paul evokes in Romans. But there's a minor point, there's a minor theme to her story. And if we ignore it, if we don't look at Hagar, (laughs) uh, we're missing out. Because Hagar is an extraordinary woman of faith. She's one of the most remarkable women in the Bible. Uh, Hagar has two face-to-face encounters with God. 
which is really extraordinary. There's no other person other than Moses and the patriarchs and maybe some of the prophets, but certainly no other woman. And so Hagar stands alone in this, right? Um, Hagar is an extremely blessed woman. And notice that the Bible doesn't treat her as a throwaway minor character, but it lingers over her story. And so it's inviting us to, to look at her and to consider her. And so we have a tremendous amount that we can learn from her. And so uh, this is my outline, three points. Number one, we're going to look at Hagar's story. Actually, we're going to look at her backstory. Uh, and then we're going to look at uh, God, how God meets her in her weakness. And then finally, we're going to see that God is the, the blessing of the gospel, that his presence is a blessing. Okay, so point number one, Hagar's story. Now, we're first introduced to Hagar in chapter 16. And there we learn that Hagar is Sarah's maidservant, basically a slave. Now, you became a slave in one of two ways in the ancient world. Either her village was raided, her parents killed, and she was taken captive and then sold as a slave, or her own family sold her into slavery to pay off debts. But in either case, what this tells us is that her early life was filled with tremendous pain and sorrow. And the other thing we learn is that Hagar is an Egyptian, uh, which means that she was a foreigner in Abraham's family, which means that everything was strange and all the customs were unfamiliar to her. And so she was always an outsider. She, was, she never felt uh, at home completely. Um, she was always alone. And so what is the portrait that arises here is that we learn three things. Number one, Hagar was a woman in a world in which only men counted. She was a slave, which uh, meant that she, was, uh, she held the lowest status, right? That her life was not her own, right? Her entire life was dictated by other people. And she was a foreigner, which means she was hated and despised and marginalized. And so Hagar was the lowest of the low. She had no social standing in that family. She was utterly vulnerable. And then, one day, uh, Sarah, her mistress, comes to her and he says, I'm going to give you to my husband Abraham. And you're going to bear him a son. And then suddenly, she's thrust into this situation. She becomes a pawn in this little game that that Abraham and Sarah are playing with God. And she didn't ask for this, right? This was imposed on her. And if you read chapter 16, you never hear her give her consent because she wasn't asked. It wasn't up to her. And so she becomes Abraham's second wife. But this is very important. She's still a slave. Now, how messed up is that? You know, I want you to imagine the situation. I mean, to be the second wife is already a very tenuous situation. But then you're the first wife and your own husband is your slave master. And so they're constantly ordering you around. And so she's still doing all the grunt work and all the slave work. And, and then one day she becomes pregnant. And you would think that her situation would improve. But in fact, it becomes far worse because Sarah who has always struggled with infertility, becomes insanely jealous of Hagar and just hates on Hagar. And there's this scene in chapter 16 where she goes to Abraham and she's just ripping into him. This is all your fault. And Abraham, the coward he is, he says, do whatever you want with her. And so he, she proceeds to make her life 
uh, just a horrible existence, right? She just abuses her and treats her so harshly, so much so that Hagar runs away. And she runs away as a pregnant woman with no possessions, no husband, which in that world was to, was to invite scorn, was to embrace uh, grinding poverty, was just a completely difficult life. And the fact that she would rather have that than to stay home tells you what a living hell her life must have been. And so you would think that this is the end of the story, right? Exit Hagar, stage left. Now we can carry on with the real drama, which is um, Sarah and Isaac. But the story doesn't end because God has a special concern for Hagar. He loves Hagar. And he comes to her as the angel of the Lord. And he comforts her and he reassures her. And he gives her this, this tremendous promise. He says that uh, you, will give, you will have a son and he will become a great nation. And, um, and in the ancient world, you know, the, most, the, the greatest blessing that you could possibly have is to have lots and lots of children. And so the fact that she's going to give birth to an entire new nation, this is a tremendous honor. We honestly cannot understand or appreciate what, what a tremendous blessing this is for her. And it's all the more remarkable because the commentators say that the language here and the promise here is, is strikingly parallel to what was said to Abraham. And remember, this is Hagar. This is a woman. And so she's going to give, as a matriarch, she's going to give birth to this nation. Now, I should say at this point that Hagar's line does not uh, ultimately become part of God's redemptive plans, meaning that the Savior Jesus is going to be born through Isaac and not Ishmael. But that, that does not take away from the fact that this shows you God's tremendous love for Hagar, that God regards Hagar, that he loves her. And then he, uh, he instructs her to call the name of her son Ishmael, which means God hears. He says, for I've heard your sorrows. And then she in turn names God. And the commentators say that she's the only one in the Bible to have ever done this. She says, you are the God who sees me. And just like Jacob, she names the location. She says, this is the well of the God who sees me. And so do you see what's going on? See, Hagar was a nobody. Nobody noticed her. Nobody paid attention to her. Nobody listened to her. But God says, I hear you. And I see you. And so this shows you that God loves Hagar. And why am I bringing all of this up? Uh, It's important for us as we head to chapter 21 that, that as we look at that story, to remember that God has a special regard for Hagar. He's watching over Hagar. He cares for Hagar. He loves her. Okay? So that leads me to my second point, which is um, God meets Hagar in her weakness. And so now we're in chapter 21. And uh, Sarah, in the early part of the chapter, we learn that Sarah finally gives birth to Isaac. It's a miracle in her old age. And Hagar's situation immediately deteriorates uh, because before this, Ishmael, her son, was the heir. And now, this little boy, Isaac, this baby boy, has displaced her son, and and Ishmael doesn't handle it too well. And uh, in verse 9, it says that um, he laughed at her. And he laughed at uh, Isaac, which doesn't sound too harmless, but the narrator is actually doing a little word pun because Isaac's name means laughter. And so Ishmael is laughing at Isaac, 
and which means he's mocking him. He's, he's, he's uh, bullying Isaac, right? Because he used to be the little prince thing, and now this little baby has displaced him. And when Sarah sees this, she goes ballistic. And she's always hated Hagar. She's always been jealous of Hagar. And now that she has her own little boy, she cannot stand the sight of them. And so she tells Abraham, cast out this slave woman. Notice her language. Cast out this slave woman and her son away from me. And it's a really messed up situation, you know. And uh, I'm kind of mad at, at Sarah here because this was her idea in the first place. You know, and she's right to a certain extent. Ishmael will cause problems. You know, there's going to be conflicts in the family. But she's responsible. And, you know, she cannot just throw them away like some piece of trash. But what really surprises us is verse 12. When God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, do what she says. Send them out into the wilderness. And when you read that, you think, Does God not love Hagar? Absolutely not. And this is a little bit of a minor point, but it's an important one, that God is using the evil intentions and deeds uh, to carry out his good and gracious plans for Hagar, right? And what that shows us is that even when evil things are happening to us, it doesn't mean God has abandoned us, but God is loving us. He's, uh, he's, He's bringing together everything for our good. And so Hagar and Sarah is cast out. And I want us to appreciate here just what a tremendous loss this must have been for her, okay? Because Hagar loses uh, the comforts and securities of her home. She loses her husband. Granted, he was a crummy husband. But even in this story, you can see that Abraham loves her and cares for her and he, he provides for her. She loses a father for her son, Ishmael. I mean, imagine your own father casting you out into the, into the streets. And so her whole world is falling apart. And in one swift stroke, she loses everything. She's almost like, uh, uh, like Job, you know, a female Job. And then, worst of all, She's cast out into the wilderness of Beersheba. What is that? Beersheba is the southernmost city in Israel, and it's the last outpost before the Negev. And the Negev uh, is this vast, uninhabited wilderness of 5,000 square miles. It's actually the largest desert in Israel, and uh, it's very arid, bone dry forbidding, hostile terrain. If you actually look at photos of the Negev, it looks like Death Valley. Right? And so it, she's in a very precarious situation. And so Abraham knows this. And so he loads Hagar up with supplies. Right? It says, and we're given just a few details, he gives her a skin of water. Now a skin is basically a bag made of a goat skin. And it can hold three gallons, 25 pounds of water. So she's loaded up with 25 uh, 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 pounds of water. I guess like the ancient version of the camel. And then he gives her all the, the food she can carry. And remember, in addition to that, she has to care for her little son. And they're cast out into Death Valley. Now, her situation is dire. And her only hope is to quickly cross the Negev in a matter of a few days and to reach Egypt or Midian. And so her only hope of survival is to do that. But she quickly runs into trouble. And in verse uh, 14, it says that she wandered the wilderness. Now, that word means uh, to walk around aimlessly. She's lost. She's lost. 
And then the worst case scenario unfolds. Her water runs out. Now the narrator has uh, the narrator gives us no other details because everyone in that culture knew exactly what that meant. But uh, you and I have no idea, right? So I went onto the internet and I did a little research. Uh, and I looked at what medical experts say about what it's like to die of dehydration. And I actually had a really long uh, description that I wanted to read for you, but I'm going to spare you the gory details. Let me just give you the bottom line. Basically, death by dehydration uh, is an extremely uh, painful, uh, agonizing death. Uh, your body shuts down, right? Um, it goes into severe shock as all the water is just shunted to the vital organs in a desperate attempt to keep you alive. And so uh, the narrator actually, so not, none of this has to be said because everyone in that culture knew exactly what that meant. But the narrator does give us a little detail that I think just invites us into her story and shows us her state of mind. Hagar knew what was going to happen, right? As soon as her water ran out, she knew. And so she takes her little boy and she lays him down tenderly under a bush so that at least he'll have shade. You know, at least he'll be shielded from the fierce sun. And then, um, and then she walks some distance away. Why? Because she cannot bear to hear his agonizing cries of thirst. She can't bear to watch him die. Now, I'm a parent, a very recent parent, and I think I can somewhat imagine what that must have been like. You know, it's one thing for you to suffer pain and to die yourself. But to watch your child suffer, right, to be powerless to do anything about it is an entirely, thing, an entirely different thing altogether. And so this must have been the most excruciating experience for Hagar. And so if there's a bottom to what a human being can experience, this is it. Hagar has had it. And in verse 16, it says, she lifted up her voice and she wept. And those must have been the most bitter, painful tears. You know, just utter despair and hopelessness. And then we come to verse 17. And in verse 17, God comes to her and he comforts her. And he reminds her of the promise that he gave to her that Ishmael will not die but that he'll become a great nation. And that's the end of the story. But I want to ask the question, and this is the critical question for tonight. Why now? Why did God wait until the last possible moment? I mean, why didn't God come to her as soon as she was cast out into the Negev? Or at least why didn't he give her some kind of assurance? He did that, he did that for Abraham. Right? But as far as she's concerned, she has no idea what's going to happen. And in fact, God watches Hagar as she wanders around the Negev for several days as panic and terror and fear is setting in as her, as her water supply is, is, is running out. And it's not until she has had the bottom of despair and hopelessness until the last moments, right, on the brink of death, the last breaths that Ishmael's taking, that God draws near, and he rescues her. Why would God do that? That's the critical question. And the answer is that God only meets us in our weakness. The answer is that God only draws near when we are weak because it's only then that we can experience and understand God. 
right? It's only when everything has been stripped from us, right? It's only when God takes away all that we have that we can understand that God is all we need. Do you know why it's so hard to experience God's nearness when you're awash in plenty and comfort? Because all those things act as God's substitutes. They're God's substitutes. So why do you need God's protection when you have a fat savings account? Why do you need to seek God for your identity and significance when you have an impressive job title and sterling academics? Why do you need God's love when you're surrounded by friends and family, but it's only when you have nothing that you can experience the closeness of God. Uh, The Apostle Paul gave this uh, story in 2 Corinthians. He says, there was given to him a, a thorn in the flesh. Now, we're not certain what that was, but it was some kind of debilitating physical illness. And uh, it was an agonizing thing for him. And he says that three times he asked the Lord, please take it away from me. And that's a remarkable thing because we know that Paul endured um, multiple beatings and imprisonments and torture and riots and all of that with great patience, with great endurance. And this, Paul says, I, this I cannot bear, I cannot endure, right? Which is remarkable because we know that Paul received five times the 40 lashes one. Do you know what that is? That's when they whip you so badly that the skin off your back is just ripped off of you. And yet Paul says, this I cannot bear, this I cannot endure. Can you imagine what that must have been? And this is what Jesus says to him in 2 Corinthians. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul writes, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I experience weakness in my life, then I can lean upon the strength of God. And so do we believe this? Or are we full of complaints and grumblings when God takes away our comfort and our security? Do you know what God is asking us when he does this? He's saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Or do you love me only for the gifts that I can give you? Right? Do you love me? Or did all along did you only love me for the good gifts that I can give to you? And so that leads to my third point, which is that this sh- story shows us that God is the blessing of the gospel. You see, this story radically reshapes our understanding of the gospel because American Christianity tells us that the gospel is so that God can give us a nice life full of nice things. But how could that be? Look at Hagar. How, I mean, how could that possibly be? Rather, this story shows us that the blessing of the gospel, the gift of the gospel, is God himself. Uh, John Piper wrote a book uh, a few years back called God is the Gospel. And this is what he writes. He says, when I say that God is the gospel, I mean that the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, 
without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ revealed for for our everlasting enjoyment. The saving love of God is God's commitment to do everything necessary to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely himself. Do you see what John Piper is saying? He's saying that this is what saving love is. Do you know what saving love is? That God will do everything necessary to bring you to a place so that you can enjoy him and love him and be enthralled with him. And if that means that God has to take away something from your life so that you can see that, God will do it, and that is saving love. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. Do you want to know what eternal life is? Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you understand that the best and final gift that God gives us is that we gain Christ? Is that good news for you? Do you rejoice in that? Can we say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ. Do you see what Paul is saying? You know he wrote this, by the way, in a Roman prison. Roman prisons aren't like American prisons. Okay, Roman prisons were designed to torture you. And Paul wrote this. And do you know what he's saying? The gospel gives us eyes to see Christ and to see him as the treasure of our lives. This story challenges us in so many ways, you know, because I love this story about Hagar. Maybe the, maybe the, uh, the, the application point is, some of you are being called to name your daughter Hagar. <laughs> but um, this story is so great, you know, because in chapter 16, we see Hagar. God loves her. He's watching over. He cares for her. He's giving her all these tremendous blessings. And then in chapter 21, her entire world falls apart. She loses everything, right? She loses her home. She loses her husband. She loses the father too. Uh, to, to Ishmael, and we're saying, what is going on here? And now we know. God is doing it because he loves Hagar. Because it's only in the wilderness, it's only because God was bringing her to that place so that she can see at last that God is the true home that she's been looking for, that, these, that our earthly dwellings is but a dim reflection of, that God is her true husband, that even the best spouse that we have in this life is but an echo of Jesus Christ, whom the Bible says is the bridegroom. And God is the ultimate father into whose arms we're longing to fall into, into, into whose love we need, and which even the best parent fails us, right? And some of us don't even have that. Some of us have terrible parents. And we're asking, God, why did you give me a terrible family? Why did you give me a terrible mom and terrible dad? And the answer, in part, is so that you can realize that all along God is the true parent that you are, you've been looking for. He is the true parent into whose arms 
you need to fall into. And so that's the gospel. That's what God is bringing us to. And, and so some of you are saying, well, does that mean that I need to sell everything that I have and become a beggar and live on the streets and wander around in Death Valley? No. That's what faith is. Faith is to realize that you're a spiritual beggar. Faith is, faith is to realize that you have no earthly home. Right? That you've been cast out, that you're spiritually bankrupt, and therefore your only hope, your only joy, your only treasure is Christ. And so I want to close by reading to you from Psalm 63, and I, I really hope that this is your prayer. Let this be the cry of your heart. Psalm 63 O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My, faint, my flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Hagar knew this. Listen, because your steadfast love is better than life. That's why the Bible says to die is gain. Right? And Christ is life. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for uh, your tremendous love for Hagar, and we know that uh, that is, is in so many ways a picture of your love for us. And Hagar was in the wilderness, and she, was, uh, uh, she almost lost her son, but we know that the gospel is that you actually lost your son. And he suffered not the agonizing uh, cries of, uh, of dehydration, but he suffered the cosmic thirst on the cross so that we will never thirst, so that we will never be without a home, so that we will never be orphans. And so, Lord, we pray that you would impress that in our hearts, that that would become the, the joy and foundation of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.